You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. book of Acts chapter 24. Last week I was rudely interrupted by the clock, and so we had to cut short a section of Paul's defense before the governor Felix. And although it was a rude interruption, it was a rather convenient interruption because we got through the first two points that Paul was making in his defense, and so that leaves us with two more. Paul is in Acts chapter 24 giving a defense of his self and his ministry and his teaching before the governor of the region, Felix, and his accusers have come in, and you may remember the three charges that they leveled against Paul. They said he's guilty of sedition, stirring up the Jews everywhere. And to which Paul said, I didn't have time to cause sedition, I didn't have motive to cause sedition, and they can't prove to you that I've caused sedition. Their second charge was that he was guilty of sectarianism, that he was a ringleader or the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And now Paul is offering a defense of himself against that charge of sectarianism. And last week we looked at the first two things that Paul described in giving his defense against the charge of sectarianism. Now remember that the charge is a loaded charge and it's designed to do two things. It is designed first of all to show that the Apostle Paul is himself a heretic, an apostate, a false teacher, a false prophet, a false leader who is leading people away from the one true God of Israel. Because he was not pursuing righteousness through the law, because he was not requiring converts to be circumcised and become proselytes to Judaism, because he was not requiring people to observe the Sabbath and all of the ceremonial laws, and because he did not believe that all of religious worship centered around the temple in Jerusalem any longer, For all of those reasons, they said he's an apostate. He has departed from the one true God. The second thing that the charge was geared to do was to prove that Christianity was itself an illegal or illicit religion. And the charge is designed to show that Christianity being a sect outside of Judaism was not connected to the Jewish faith, was not connected to the Jewish Scriptures, did not worship the Jewish God, and as such, As a sect, and Paul as the ringleader of the sect, they qualified as an illegal or illicit religion, and thus would have been illegal in the eyes of Rome. Two very serious implications to this charge. And I mentioned last week, and I gave you an illustration last week of what Paul's task is. Imagine that you're standing before a judge, and the judge says to you, your life is on the line. You are going to receive the death penalty unless you can demonstrate to me that everything that you believe about Jesus Christ is taught in the Old Testament Scriptures, and that Christianity is not a sect, but that it is indeed the fulfillment of and the greatest expression of Judaism. Prove to me that Christianity is not a sect. Just using your Old Testament Scriptures. That's what Paul has to do. Because that is what the charge is. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And the Jews, by accusing him of that, are saying he's outside of the Jewish mainstream. So now Paul has to defend himself in such a way as to show that Christianity is in fact very Jewish, in fact the truest expression of Judaism. Who could be more Jewish than a Jew who has been born a Jew and born again a Jew? Who could be more Jewish than that? Paul would argue, what kind of a Jew is it 
that doesn't embrace the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish hope for the Jewish nation. The truest fulfillment of Judaism is Christianity. That's his argument. And so Paul begins by describing first his his worship. I serve the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I serve the same God as these men who are my accusers. Then second, he describes his beliefs, believing all that is written in the law and the prophets, which was actually more than what his accusers believed. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Sadducees. So Paul says, I worship the same God. I read and believe the same Scriptures. And now third, verse 15 and verse 16, he's going to argue that he cherishes the same hope and that he pursues the same goal. So we pick it up in Acts chapter 24, and I want you to go back to verse 14. This is Paul's defense. First, he describes his worship. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, do I serve or do I worship the God of our fathers? Then he describes his belief, believing all that is written in the law and then the prophets. And in third, verse 15, and this is where we pick it up, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That's the same hope. Paul says, I have the same God, I believe the same Scriptures, and I have the same hope. What is that hope? Namely, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. There will certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That is my hope, Paul says. That is your hope, if you're a biblical New Testament Christian and you have your thinking informed by Scripture. That is my hope. That is our hope. That is the hope of the New Testament church. Now, when Paul uses the term hope, he doesn't use the term hope in the same way that you and I use the term hope. How do we use the term hope? Not to refer to the city that's farther east than Sandpoint. When we use the term hope, we mean we use it in terms of a wish. I hope it will rain. I, I hope that something good happens today. I, I hope that there is some cheesecake at the potluck this afternoon. That's how we use the term hope. We're wishing for something. We're wanting something to come to pass or to happen. That's not how Scripture uses the word hope. When Scripture uses the word hope, it means a certain expectation. In other words, it's not something he's wishing for. Paul is saying, you can nail this down. I know that this is going to happen. This is my hope. This is what I have fixed my hope on. My hope is it is secure. It is locked. It is solid. It is certain. It is immovable. It is fixed. That's a hope. Not something I wish for, Paul says, but this is something I set my eyes on because it is fixed. It is certain. It is secure. What is his hope? Namely, he says, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. But look what Paul says. I have the same hope, or I have this hope in God, which these men also cherish. Who's the these men that Paul's referring to? Who would that be? That would be his accusers, right? Ananias and Tertullus and the elders. In in verse 1, who came down from Jerusalem to Caesarea to bring accusations against Paul before Felix. These men. Now, what do we know about Ananias and Tertullus and the majority of the elders? What is significant about them? They are Sadducees, right? Ananias is a Sadducee. Most of the elders are Sadducees. Tertullus is likely a Sadducee, the orator, the lawyer that they brought with them. What do we know about Sadducees? Did they believe in a resurrection? They didn't. So when Paul says, I cherish the same hope as these men, what is he doing? 
Does Paul not know what they believe? No, he certainly knows what they believe. Remember, it was at the the council meeting when Paul perceived that some of them were Pharisees and some of them were Sadducees, that he cried out in the midst of them, I am a Pharisee and I am the son of a Pharisee and I am on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And some of the Pharisees said, well, we don't see anything wrong with this man. And he instantly got half of the council on his side. Paul knows what the Sadducees believe. So what is he doing when he points to the Sadducees and he says, I have a hope in the resurrection with these men, which these men also cherish. The reality of it is that Ananias and Tertullus and the majority of those elders did not cherish a hope in the resurrection. They denied the resurrection. And by that, I'm not talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the principle of resurrection in general. They didn't believe that dead people come back to life. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in dead people coming back to life. They didn't believe in spirits and angels. And since they denied that dead people can come back to life and they believed that this life simply ends with a cessation of existence, that there is no afterlife, no retribution, and no reward, because they believed that, they also rejected the resurrection of Christ. And they also then rejected that at the end of time there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So they didn't cherish that hope. So what is Paul doing? He's not setting himself up to be refuted. There were some of those who came. I think this is the best way of understanding it. There are some of those who came down to accuse Paul. Some of those elders were Pharisees. The majority of them were Sadducees. But there were obviously some among his accusers who cherished that same hope. And Paul points to them. And here's what I think he's doing. I think he's trying to do the same thing that he did in the council. He is trying to get some of those who have come down to accuse him on his side by stating his position on the resurrection. It worked in the Sanhedrin, didn't it? It worked in the council when he said, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, and I'm on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And he gained a following. He gained instantly some friends out of the Sanhedrin who said, well, we believe the same thing. He's not that bad of a guy. And they went to bat for him. I think Paul's doing the same strategy. He's pointing to a few who have come down from Jerusalem. He said, I cherish the same hope that these guys do. He is saying when it comes to some of these essential doctrines, namely the resurrection of the dead, I'm right with these guys. And listen, by doing that, what he does is he puts himself right in the center of mainstream Judaism. What did the Jews believe? The Jews believed that there would be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now you say, does the Old Testament teach that? It certainly does. Listen to a couple of verses. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Shout for joy, because out of the dust, Isaiah says, your dead will live. Your dead will rise. Your corpse will rise. Job chapter 19. And what's interesting about this reference in Job and listen to this, you have to understand this. Job lived, likely at the time of Abraham, some have argued that Job even lived before the flood. Likely Job lived sometime between the flood and the time of Abraham or around the time of Abraham. And the book of Job is the oldest book in the Old Testament. It was written before Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the oldest book. So here's this old, 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 Old Testament saint. In the first written revelation, here's what Job says. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last, He will take His stand on the earth. And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. Wow. 
Did you hear that? Job says, long after my skin is eaten by worms, from my flesh I will see my Redeemer who lives. He will take His stand on the earth, and these eyes will see Him after the worms have destroyed this corpse. That's incredible. My Redeemer lives, and I will see Him. These eyes will see Him, and not another. Long after my skin has been destroyed by worms. Ezekiel chapter 37 Based upon Ezekiel chapter 37, the Jews would look forward to the national resurrection and the resurrection of the entire nation at some point. And they believed, the Jews believed, that at some point before the Messiah came, before the Son of David would rule, that God would raise up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and all of those Old Testament saints to enjoy the peace and the rule of the Son of David on earth. That's what they looked forward to. That was their hope. Now you say, up till now, all of this has talked about the resurrection of the saints, the resurrection of the righteous. Did the Old Testament saints, did the Old Testament Jews, did they believe in the resurrection of the wicked? They certainly did. Where did they get that from? Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Listen to Daniel. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Did you hear that? Many of those who sleep in the dust will awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. Daniel said there's going to be a resurrection of all men, some to life and some to death. That's what the Old Testament saints believe. In my flesh I will see God, Job said. Now Jesus reinforced the teaching in John chapter 5. Listen to what Jesus said. He said there's going to come a day when the Son of Man will speak with His voice and all who are in the graves will hear His voice and they will come forth from their graves, some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting death. He basically repeated exactly what Daniel had said. And the Son of Man is going to do that. Who, who is it that's going to raise all men? There will be a resurrection or resurrections that will take place in stages as you're going to see in a moment. There will be a resurrection or resurrections in which all men will eventually stand in their flesh. All men will eventually get a body, both the righteous and the wicked. Now you turn to the New Testament you say the Old Testament taught that all men are raised, some to life and some to death. That's what the Jews believe. When we get to the New Testament, is there further revelation about it? There certainly is. The New Testament authors speak of it. In fact, Paul focuses in exclusively on, in his epistles, on the resurrection of the righteous. And there is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I believe, the description of the first part of the first resurrection. Now there are two resurrections, one to eternal life and one to eternal damnation. The resurrection to eternal life, the resurrection of life encompasses all of the saints, all of the righteous at one time or another. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Christ is first and after Him those who are Christ at His coming. Each according to His order, Paul says. There is an order to all of this. It's not that all men are spit out of the earth at the same time. It is that there is a purpose and there is an order to the way God has done this and the way God has designed this and to what's going to happen in the future. First Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's the first part of the first resurrection. That is to say that there will come become a time 
when not all of us are going to sleep, not all of us are going to die. 1 Corinthians 15 says that, and I'll get to that in just a second. There's going to come a time when we who are alive and uh, remain until the coming of the Lord, we're not going to proceed in resurrection those who have already fallen asleep in Christ. But the dead will be raised and they will be transformed. Then we will be changed and we all, as a church, as New Testament, in Christ saints, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 says, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I kind of have a hard time deciding whether I want to die and go to be with the Lord and come back and get my body and then get caught up with everybody, or if I want to just be walking around at some point and be instantly transformed, be instantly changed. Because, friends, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and this perishable has to put on imperishable. This mortal has to put on immortality. This weak corpse has to be transformed into a heavenly body that is fit for eternal glory. I'm not sure if, of which one of those I want. I, I kind of like to die and know what that's like. To die and then sort of wake up in glory. And then have some kind of time pass, I'm not sure which. How much? And to see everybody and kind of get ready for the, to come back with the Lord. And then to come down through the clouds and to see that, oh, there's my body coming out of the grave right where I left it. A new body. And I go in to be with it. And then, and then all around me, people who are standing there, transformed, changed from perishable to imperishable. And they put on a brand new body and boom, all caught up together. It's going to happen much quicker than what I just described to you. Or if I would just like to be walking around and then all of a sudden say, whoa, weren't you dead? And then what's happened to my body? And then all we caught up and together with the Lord. I'd kind of like to have the whole banana. I would kind of like to have both of those things happen so that I could experience both of them. But I'm going to experience one or the other. We're not all going to sleep. But Paul says we'll all be changed. And it's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye. And we'll be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Now what about Old Testament saints? What about David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph? What about the Old Testament saints? What, what, what happens with them? Now some people say, well, they think that the Old Testament saints are raised at the same time at the rapture of the church, what we call the snatching away of the church, They say, we think that the Old Testament saints are caught up with the Lord. I don't think that that's when the Old Testament saints are raised. I think the Old Testament saints are raised right beginning, right prior to the beginning of the reign of Christ on earth. Um, It says the dead in Christ will rise. Old Testament saints are never said to be in Christ. They're saved by the death of Christ. They're saved by the blood of Christ. It's by faith in that Messiah. But they're never said to be in Christ. It's the dead in Christ who enjoy that resurrection. Well, when do they get their resurrection? Because all of us have to stand before the Lord, right? Turn to Revelation chapter 20. I want you to see the last part of the first resurrection and the second resurrection as well. The end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 20. John says, then I saw an angel, verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he said, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony. That's saints who died during the tribulation. The testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, 
and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And I want you to notice that five times in those verses, a thousand years is mentioned. Five times. That's not by accident. John's trying to communicate something. He is saying this is the length of the reign. Notice in verse 5, at the beginning of that, there is a resurrection of those who have died during the tribulation and not received the mark. I believe that it's then that all of the Old Testament saints will be raised again. That was the promise of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37. That was what they looked forward to based on Isaiah chapter 26. It is then that all of the Old Testament saints will be raised and they will enter the kingdom to enjoy the reign that they looked forward to in their lifetime and heard promised to them during their lifetime but they died having never seen the fulfillment of it. And they will be raised to enjoy the fulfillment of it. Then there will be a thousand year period of time, and then there is the second resurrection. Now I said the first resurrection was a resurrection to life. The second resurrection is a resurrection to eternal judgment and damnation. Now some people say, well, what about the rapture? Is that part of the first resurrection? Yes, it is. God resurrects some saints in different orders for different purposes. They say, well, he has to resurrect everybody at the same time. No, he doesn't. He has to resurrect all the righteous at the same time. No, he doesn't. God can do whatever he wants. There's going to come a time when some are taken away and then begin before the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth, according to the prophets, the Old Testament saints will be raised. And then John says, blessed is everyone who has part in that resurrection, the first resurrection, because over them the second death has no power. Now what about the, what about the wicked? Look at verse 7 of Revelation chapter 20. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw, and here's the judgment, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. That's the resurrection of the wicked. Death and Hades and the sea and every place where the wicked have died, they give up their dead and they stand before the great white throne. In their bodies. That's what a resurrection is, friends. When Paul says, I believe in the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, he doesn't mean the righteous in a body and the wicked in a spirit. The word resurrection is always used to refer to the resurrection of the body, not a spirit and not a soul. So they get a body at the end of that thousand years. Then they're judged according to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, verse 13, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second resurrection. The resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. Paul says, I cherish the same hope that these men do, that there will certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now that kind of helps explain some of the timing of all of that. What about the nature of it? What's it going to be like? What is, what is, what is your body going to be like? 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's going to be a heavenly body. It's going to be a spiritual body. It's going to be a body that is fit for eternal glory. It will be imperishable. It will be immortal. It will be holy. It will be honorable. It will be free from the curse, free from the presence of sin. Friends, when Christ came to redeem us, He came to redeem us spirit and soul and body. The body is redeemed as well as my soul. Now, this body cannot inherit flesh and blood. Something has to happen to it. It either has to die and be resurrected in a heavenly body, or it has to be instantly transformed and fit for eternal glory. But I'm going to have a body in which there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more suffering, no disease, no sickness, no backaches, no bad night's sleep, no stiff necks in the morning, no blisters, no bleeding, no none of that. There's no, no imperfections. The body that I get is not going to have any imperfections. And since that's the case, you're not even going to recognize me. When the Lord takes away all of these imperfections, you're not even going to know who I am in glory. Some of you will just be perfect. You'll be just like you are here. All the imperfections are removed, and that was your wrinkle. It was removed. Not me. You're not even going to recognize me when all of the imperfections are gone. But it's going to be a body that has no imperfections. It will be a body that is fit for glory, worship, praise, adoration, enjoyment, pleasure, joy, happiness, peace, for all of eternity, forever and ever and ever. Now, if flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, how does our heavenly body inherit the kingdom of God? Friends, I don't know. You remember Jesus, after he raised, was raised from the dead, he said to Thomas, does the spirit have flesh and bones like you see that I have? He had a physical body, and it was the same body that had lived here and died and been crucified and buried. When it was risen again, it was a body that was like his but different than his like it in many respects, but different in many more respects. It was a heavenly body, an imperishable body, an immortal body. Now, I've never dissected a heavenly body, so I don't know if it has kidneys and a, and a stomach and a heart like ours has, or if it is an entirely different body that functions in an entirely different way. But it will be a heavenly body and an eternal body. Now, what about the wicked? What kind of a body do they get? Do they get a body? The wicked most certainly get a body. Friends, do you understand that the torments of hell are not the torments of the soul only or the spirit only. The torments of hell and the judgment of hell is torment of a physical nature. And the wicked get a body that is fit for that kind of torment, for that kind of judgment, for that kind of damnation. They get a body just the same as we get a body, but it's not going to be like ours. It's not a redeemed body. It's not a body that's free from the curse. It won't be a body that's been sanctified and justified. It won't be glorified. It won't be honorable. It won't be, it'll be eternal, but it will not be imperishable and immortal the same way ours is. But they'll get a body. Do you know when Jesus spoke about the torments of hell that he mentioned the body? In fact, when Jesus talked about it, he talked about it in such a way that he always emphasized the presence of the body in hell. Matthew chapter 5, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole what? Body to be thrown into hell. Matthew chapter 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And I wish I had a whole message to just go into what it is going to be like to have a body for eternity in hell. Fathom that. A body that burns but is never consumed. It is tormented, but it's never destroyed. It keeps on being eaten, but it's never always eaten. It keeps on being burned, but it's never consumed by the flames. It is an eternal body that is fit to house a vessel for eternal destruction away from the presence of God. 
Hell is as much physical as it is spiritual and emotional and soulish torment. That's what the wicked have to look forward to. Now, if you're a believer, let me tell you what the future holds for you. And we'll wrap all of that up into these two cute little scenarios. As a believer, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to die and go to be with the Lord and then come back and get your body and go to be with the Lord. Or, or you're going to be transformed instantly and caught up to be with the Lord. That's what awaits you forever and ever. And you will get a body that is fit for eternal joy, eternal pleasure, eternal enjoyment of God in His presence, praise and adoration, happiness and joy and all of that. If you're an unbeliever, here's what awaits you. You will die and you will step out of this realm and you will step into a place of punishment. Not with your body, but with your soul, spirit. You will step into a place of punishment. And there you will be tormented for for at least a thousand years because you don't get your body until the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. Then, dead, the death and Hades and hell and destruction will spit you up out of there and you will get a body and you will stand before the great white throne and you will answer for your crimes against God and the books will be opened and you will be judged according to every last deed that you have done that is a violation of God's holiness, His righteousness, His judgment, and His justice. And you will stand there with nothing to say except for guilty. And then you will be cast into the lake of fire where you will be tormented day and night forever and ever and punished for your sins. Now, you may not think that's right. You may not think that's just, but that's what Scripture teaches. That's what you have to look forward to. As you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I buried my grandmother. She died. And I was um, heavily involved with not only the planning of the funeral, but also the in, administrating the funeral, speaking at it, and um, going through all of this stuff that's part of doing funerals. And uh, after that, when after the whole family had flown, flown back to Sandpoint here, and we had the funeral, I, I think it was Sunday night after our worship service that was following that, we were sitting around my living room, and one of my relatives asked me, what does your religion teach about cremation? Now, I had just been studying. Now, we didn't have my grandmother cremated. We had her buried, just for the record, in case you're curious. We had been, I had been studying this text and preparing for the series of messages on Paul's defense and this idea of the resurrection of the just and the unjust had come up. And so when she asked me about cremation, I was ready to answer it. And ironically, just this last week, during a counseling session that I had in my office, a couple asked me the same question. What about cremation? What about those who are cremated? Now, Scripture doesn't anywhere say that you shouldn't cremate your dead. Doesn't anywhere say that it's sin. Doesn't anywhere prohibit it. But there is a reason why Christians and Jews bury their dead. Do you know why that is? They bury their dead because Christians and Jews believe that the body will rise again. We don't burn our dead. We bury our dead. There's a symbolic faith-based reason why we bury the body, why we anoint it, why we, why they dressed it up and put it in the tomb because they believed that there was coming a day in which all of them would step out of the tombs and we would all get our bodies back. Now listen, being cremated doesn't keep God from resurrecting the body any more than dying in an explosion or having your body eaten at sea with a shark uh, or just rotting into the ground and deteriorating away. But there is a symbolic reason why we bury our dead rather than burn our dead. Now, does that mean that it's unbiblical to cremate? No, don't get that from what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is a religious reason why we bury the dead. And friends, it goes all the way back to the hope of the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Why was it that Joseph gave such good instructions on what to do with his bones? He said to his descendants, when we come out of here, you take my bones with you. 
And you bury them in the land that our father is, that our God is giving to us. Why did Joseph do that? Because Joseph believed like Jacob and like Isaac and like Isaiah and like Jeremiah and like Abraham and like Job that he would stand in his flesh and see God. And so he said, I want you to take care of my body. If he didn't have any hope in the resurrection, he would have said, just burn it. I mean, why pack that out of Egypt all the way back to the promised land? Just burn the bones and leave them behind. Spread them on the dust of Egypt. I mean, this is where I had my life and I enjoyed it. No, I said, I want you to take my body and I want you to bury it in the land that our God has given to us. Because he believed in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Some to eternal life in a body. Some to eternal damnation in a body. What about the wicked? They get a body too. What about cremation? doesn't affect anything, friends. It's right out of the elements that God is going to recreate a new body for everybody. Now, some people will say, that's just too hard to believe that God would actually recreate or resurrect every individual who's ever lived. It's not hard to believe. I would say to you, just like Paul said to Agrippa, why does it seem unreasonable to you people that God should raise the dead? In Acts chapter 26, why does that seem like a far-fetched thing, that God should actually speak and the dead rise? Do you think it's too difficult for God? Remember the Sadducees? They came to Jesus and they said... We had this guy, he married his wife, and, she, and he died, and so his brother married her, and he died, and on down. She kept poisoning all seven of these brothers, all the way through to the last one, and then finally they both died, and they said to Jesus, because they denied the resurrection, in the resurrection, whose wife is he going to be? They wanted to try and trip Jesus on this little technicality. She had seven wives, so when we're all raised again, if you really believe in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Jesus, tell us. And what did Jesus say? He didn't say, man, you got me on that one. You know what he said? You don't know either the Scriptures or the power of God. If you knew the Scriptures, you would know that that's what it teaches. And if you understood the power of God, then you would know it is nothing for Him to speak and all of the dead be raised. That's our hope. That is my hope. That is the Jewish hope. That is the Christian hope. That is the Messianic hope. That is the hope. The hope of the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul cherished the same hope. Number four before we get rudely interrupted by the clock again, Paul pursued the same goal. Look at verse 16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and men. Now that is the goal that these men would pursue. That was the goal of every Jew, to live holy and righteous before God, to pursue a blameless conscience, to maintain a blameless conscience. And Paul says, I, I have the same God, I believe the same Scriptures, I cherish the same hope, and I pursue the same goal. My same goal is to maintain always before God and before men, always in every place, a blameless conscience. I don't want my conscience to accuse me. I don't want it to indict me. I do not want to stand there before God at any time with a guilty conscience. Now, do you notice something unique here? Here in chapter 24, the Apostle Paul mentions conscience and hope and resurrection. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar to you if you were here for the beginning of chapter 23, because how did Paul begin his defense before the Sanhedrin? He said, brethren, I have lived my life with a clean conscience before God up to this day. And Ananias said, strike him. And they nailed him on the mouth. And then Paul said, I'm on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Do you notice the two things mentioned together? You know what I think was happening? I think the Apostle Paul was going to get around to this subject of resurrection and he began with a clean conscience. Because the idea of a clean conscience and the resurrection of the just and the unjust, friend, they go together. They go together. They're intimately connected. Because the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked is a powerful motivation to holy living if you understand it. If you understand it, it is a powerful motivation for holy living. Paul says, in view of this, in view of the resurrection of the just, in view of 
in view of the fact that I will stand in my flesh and I will see God, Paul says, I pursue holiness. I do my best. I strive. The word means I exercise myself to maintain a blameless conscience in the sight of God and before men always. Paul says, I live a holy life. I strive to be blameless and I strive to be righteous. Why? It is in view of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. It's not that in striving to be righteous, you and I earn our resurrection, but it is because of the resurrection that you and I maintain a blameless conscience and holy living. We strive to be a holy people because we will stand holy before a holy God. It's not that I make myself holy, it is that I strive, I pursue holiness, because friends, I will stand in this body and I will see my Redeemer. It'll, it'll be a changed body. But I will stand in my flesh and I will see God. Now, I don't want to do anything to, to compromise this. I don't want to do anything that might pollute this. I want to keep myself from sin. It's a motivation to holy living. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, that's it, right? If the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, then eat and drink. And listen, go out this afternoon and indulge every lust of your flesh and every desire, and don't keep your body from anything that it desires. Just do whatever pleases you. If there's no resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, then live like you want. But Paul says there is a resurrection. And so he says to the Corinthians, be sober-minded and stop sinning. The church was rampant with sin. And you know why they were overrun with sin? We finally get to the bottom of it in chapter 15. It was bad theology. They denied the resurrection. No resurrection of the righteous, no resurrection of the wicked, no retribution, no reward. Hey, eat, drink, and live as you want because tomorrow you die and that's it. But if there is a resurrection of the righteous and if there is a resurrection of the wicked, and friends, that has crushing implications upon your day-to-day life. First John chapter 3 says, we, we don't know, we don't see yet what it is that we're going to be, but we know that when we see him, we'll be just like him because we will see him as he is. And then John says, everybody who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. I like the way Matthew Henry said it. He said, in all of your religious life, keep an eye on the resurrection. Keep an eye on the resurrection. Why is that? Because in keeping an eye on the resurrection, I keep an eye on Christ. And there's something sanctifying and purifying and making me holy when my eyes are fixed on Him who is the author and finisher of my faith. I, I cast off all of the sin that so easily besets me when my eye is on Christ. And if my eye is on that resurrection, if I cherish that hope and I'm looking forward to that and that is always before me, then I'll live a holy life. I'll maintain a holy life and a blameless conscience. You keep your eye on the resurrection. You keep your eye on Christ. You keep your eye on your calling. And you're made pure. You purify yourself just as He is pure. I close with two quotes. Three, actually. Because I messed left one out earlier. I want to include it here because this is good. I close with three quotes. First from the Apostle Paul. First Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, because bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. It is for this that we labor and we strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. That's what he says. You strive, you fix your hope on it. Why? That hope, resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. It's purifying. It's cleansing. You purify yourself. If you believe, friends, that you will 
die and that you will go to be with the Lord in the presence of holiness or that you will be transformed here at any minute into that eternal body, then you will pursue a blameless conscience. You will pursue holy living. Charles Spurgeon, who had few peers when it came to expressing sentiments like this, in preaching on this very same text, he says this. Listen to this. Take care that you do not let your bodies be polluted by sin. If this throat is to warble forever with songs of glory, then let not words of lust defile it. If these eyes are to see the king and his beauty, then even let this be your prayer. Turn off my eyes from beholding vanities. If these hands are to hold a palm branch, then oh, let them never take a bribe. Let us never seek after evil. If these feet are to walk the streets of gold, then let them not be swift after mischief. If this tongue is forever to talk of all that Christ said and all that Christ did, then let it not utter light and frothy things. And if this heart is to pulsate forever with bliss, then I beseech you give it not unto strangers, neither let it wander after evil. If this body is to live forever, and care we, then what care we ought to take of it? For our bodies are temples of the Holy Ghost, and they are members of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is our hope? Resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Benjamin Franklin is buried outside of Christ Church in Philadelphia, and on his tombstone is an epitaph which he himself wrote. And here's what Franklin wrote for his own tombstone. Franklin said, The body of Franklin, a printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents are torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding. It lies here, food for worms. But the work will not be lost for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. Capital A, author. That is our hope. I will stand again in a revised and corrected edition before the author. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for that hope that we have. What an awesome and glorious and purifying hope that it is. And I would just ask, Father, that as a result of our time spent here this morning, that you would convict us of our sin, purify us from every wicked way, and motivate us and give us the grace for holy living. We pray, God, that you would impress upon our hearts and upon our minds the reality of this resurrection, that we will stand in your presence or we will stand in eternal judgment and condemnation for our sin, all determined by what we do with the Savior and how we respond to that offer of grace that you give us. We pray that you would remind us of that and keep it fresh upon our hearts in this coming week, weeks, and months. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.